It seems as if everyone these days is talking about the need for schools to pay more attention to students' social and emotional needs. Is social-emotional learning the missing piece in American education reform? Or is it just another fad that threatens to distract educators from their core mission of ensuring that students are prepared academically for what lies ahead? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and I'm joined today by the author of One Side of an EdNext Forum, debating those questions and more about the ongoing push to double down on social-emotional learning. Russ Whitehurst is Professor Emeritus at Stony Brook University and a non-resident fellow at the Urban Institute. A psychologist, he served from 2002 until 2008 as the founding director of the Federal Institute of Education Sciences. You can find his contribution to the forum entitled A Prevalence of Policy-Based Evidence-Making on the journal's website at educationnext.org. Russ, welcome to the EdNext podcast. Well, thanks very much for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. So we hear a lot about evidence-based policymaking these days and tend to think of that as a good thing. You write that when you look at the current push for social-emotional learning, you see a lot of policy-based evidence-making. What do you mean by that term? I'm referring to uh, circumstances where there are advocates for a particular policy, and uh, they assemble such evidence as they can to support uh, the policy that they've already decided that they favor. So it's uh, you, you, you decide where you're going to go and you collect whatever evidence you can that's consistent with the, with the decision that, uh, that you've made in the direction that you prefer. So rather than evidence driving policy, it's po- policy driving often the selective uh, collection and, and reporting of evidence. And when you look out at the literature on social-emotional learning and what's being discussed as people advocate for more emphasis on it, where are some examples of where you see this phenomenon rearing its head? There is, for example, uh, uh, reliance on meta-analyses, which uh, throw a lot of studies together in a mishmash and uh, draw conclusions about the overall effectiveness of social-emotional learning without uh, due consideration for the quality of those studies, uh, whether in fact they're looking at the same thing. This is, after all, a fairly dispersive topic. And uh, you end up with uh, statements that and conclusions about uh, you earn $11 back for every dollar invested, and it's just the mark of, uh, of people who are trying to make a case and uh, and not being careful about their examination of the evidence that's relevant to the case. Ordinarily, from you know, an evidence-based perspective, you'd expect to see evidence on both sides of the equation. You'd expect to see a, a careful look at, at the quality of individual studies. You'd want them parsed in terms of, you know, are we interested here in drug prevention? Are we interested in on-time graduation? Are we interested in how... Uh, students feel about themselves. These are very different things, and yet it's all thrown together with general optimistic conclusions and lack of consideration for the downsides. And one of the resources we usually have available to us to try and engage in evidence-based policymaking is the Federal What Works Clearinghouse and other reviews that are done under the auspices of the Institute of Education Sciences. And when you look at that and what they've found at social-emotional learning, that's part of where you sort of look to say that something's not right here. Is that right? Sure. I mean, you can look at what the What Works Clearinghouse has done over the last 15 years. It's examined over 10,000 studies. It's found roughly 350 that are high-quality studies that show uh, positive effects on something. That's the totality of everything that's looked at in education. And there are only a few studies that have been looked at that uh, 
that relate to uh, social-emotional learning or character education or whole school reforms. And so there's just not the body of evidence there that supports broad uh, conclusions. And when you look at those particular studies, some things work and some things don't. And it's that level of granularity we ought to be at rather than broad conclusions about a dispersive topic and uh, it's not clear what you're supposed to do or who you're supposed to do it to or how or when or anything else. And that's the level of detail I think we need. Now, your counterpart in this forum, Bob Balfance of Johns Hopkins University, he bases his argument in favor of reemphasizing social and emotional learning, not on discrete studies of SEL curricula or programming. And I'm not sure whether he disagrees or not with your interpretation on the of the evidence on that score. Rather, he bases his argument on what he refers to as the learning sciences, that is, basic research in psychology and cognitive science on how students learn. And, you know, he, he writes that what we've learned from the latest generation of research in this area is that learning is a hot rather than a cool process, one where emotions are centrally involved and that this leads naturally to, you know, an emphasis on social and emotional learning. Do you disagree with that interpretation of the broader evidence base? I don't disagree with uh, with that characterization of what we know about uh, about learning. Clearly, what we or students in the classroom learn is affected by how it's presented, who it's presented by, the emotions they're feeling uh, at 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 the time. Uh, so that that's fine, but it's very abstract. And I think my emphasis, uh, both in my personal. Uh, scholarship and what I've tried to do at a broader level has always been on what should schools do, what should teachers do, what's the next step, what can practically be done on the ground. And I don't find the general uh, characterization of the, of the brain being one in which neurons uh, spread out to emotional areas as well as uh, uh, fact-based areas to be particularly helpful to someone trying to decide what to do next in terms of investment in schools to improve uh, learning outcomes, both social emotional outcomes and academic outcomes. So specificity is, is one of my themes here. We need a lot more of it if uh, the current uh, zeitgeist about uh, social-emotional learning is to produce positive outcomes rather than to be just another education fad. So one problem you identify and that we've discussed is the evidence base here, but you're also troubled by what you refer to in the piece as a misfocus on changing student traits and dispositions rather than teaching them specific skills. What do you mean by that, and where do you see it showing up? What I mean is uh, when you look at what lots of experts and expert groups have written about social-emotional learning, uh, what they are describing are at broad levels of uh, enduring characteristics of, of human behavior. For example, whether or not an individual is conscientious, that is, given a task, uh, they carry it out faithfully, they're very concerned about finishing it on time at high quality, and uh, that what we need, ergo, is to have uh, schools, as they focus on social-emotional learning, improve these general dispositions and, and traits like conscientiousness. Uh, the problem with that is, uh, is, is, is twofold. The first is... Uh, at that level, uh, actually what uh, proponents are, are doing is characterizing uh, what uh, uh, 
psychology personality has isolated over the last hundred years as, as five essential traits of personality, conscientiousness being one. And, uh, and what we know is that these traits are, uh, uh, have a very strong hereditary component. It's difficult to change people's rank ordering on those traits in meaningful ways. And so you find as people are focusing on uh, abstractions, uh, traits, uh, general dispositions, that they're focusing on something that's very difficult to change in radical ways at the level of, of, of schools or classrooms. I draw a, an analogy in the, in the piece that I've written to uh, the focus on, on intelligence. That, too, is highly heritable. And 30 or 40 years ago, it wasn't at all unusual to find uh, educators saying, well, the purpose of our school is to increase IQ. Everyone, I think, would uh, almost everyone would find that uh, an unreasonable position uh, today. Uh, schools want to focus on how to increase uh, particular mathematical skills or, or literacy skills. And uh, so what we're finding, uh, what I'm seeing in the uh, research on social-emotional learning or the policy advocacy is something like saying, well, the focus of our school is to increase character, or the focus of our school is to increase conscientiousness, which is like saying the focus of our school is to increase IQ. It's going to fail. Much more important is that schools focus on particular behaviors, uh, things that students need to learn about themselves and others in terms of how to behave, and to do it in the sense that one would with any school curriculum. What does a first grader need to know how to do and how to feel about school, and how are we going to accomplish that? It's that specific focus rather than the focus on broad traits and dispositions that I believe is the productive path forward We've already seen a lot of work in those areas, and I think it's important as we move forward in social-emotional learning in schools to incorporate that prior work, that focus on particular interventions, how they work for whom, and to make that the core of the reform effort. And what might that look like in practice to focus on helping students engage in behaviors that are constructive rather than sort of... uh, altering their underlying dispositions. Can you give us some examples? Sure. Uh, At a broad dispositional level, you'd expect a student who uh, is characterized by himself and others as conscientious uh, to turn in his homework on time. Uh, We could try uh, to create uh, students who are uniformly conscientious and assume that if they are that, they will turn in their homework on time. Or we could teach them particular skills that help them with timeliness and homework completion. These would be schedules that they produce in advance, the ability to plan a task so that they can accomplish it, the uh, uh, involving others, parents and others, to make sure that they're on task and they're moving towards completion. And so the focus on how do you get a task, how do you get your homework in on time, how do you monitor your behavior uh, to get that accomplished is very different from teaching a child or a student to be conscientious. It is the former. How do you learn to get your homework in on time? You've got a problem here. How do you correct it? That I think schools can do. They're already engaged in that kind of activity. They need to just get better at it. Whereas everybody is going to be conscientious is, uh, I think, a fool's errand based on what we know about uh, the high heritability of the construct and the difficulty anybody has in teaching something that's so abstractly defined. And 
it may not ultimately matter which you focus on if what we care about is whether students are be able to behave in a way as if they were conscientious. Uh, in fact, I guess you're arguing that the right way to do that is to just focus on the behavior as if rather than focus on the conscientiousness itself. I would think so. There's also room here, just as there would be for the construct of intelligence, to have different interventions for different students. So while we could expect a curriculum to look different for very bright kids and for average kids, or very mathematically adept kids versus those not so mathematically adept, one could well imagine schools, rather than thinking of this as a one-size-fits-all approach, to think about what the child who has trouble with conscientiousness needs, more specific, specific interventions and help, versus the child who already is quite fine on that, uh, on that dimension. So there is, I think, a way to combine a focus on the uh, broad traits on which uh, students differ, and to do that in a way that translates into specific interventions and specific approaches for different students who have different strengths and weaknesses. So I think we have a good sense of the type of practice that you'd like to see educators engaging in at the school level and also the type of research on those practices that you'd like to see conducted. What about at the policy level? Uh, there are a lot of policymakers who are trying to figure out at the state or federal level what they should do in order to sort of facilitate an emphasis on social and emotional learning. How would a policymaker who's convinced by the argument that you've laid out here think about trying to shift practice in the direction you're calling for? Two, uh, two responses to that. One, one is for policymakers, first do no harm. And so the enthusiasm for this topic uh, by policymakers uh, carries with it the risk of uh, uh, intervention at a district or a state or federal level in ways that are quite uh, counterproductive, uh, getting uh, uh, the cart way in front of the horse in terms of policy versus what schools and teachers uh, and, and parents and communities can, can do. So I, I would certainly advise going slowly rather than uh, and carefully uh, and not getting in front of what people can do and what we know that they can do rather than uh, you know, making a huge bet on, uh, uh, on this area as, uh, you know, as the, the magic bullet that's going to generate uh, uh, impressive uh, uh, school reform. The other would be, uh, as schools uh, and teachers and classrooms are, are held accountable, to think of ways of doing it with natural measures rather than uh, measures that uh, depend on self-report, that are easily gained, and that can be distorted in ways that, uh, that are counterproductive. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's fine to, to think about uh, developing measures at a state level or a district level that look at attendance uh, because we know that attendance is a serious problem, that look at uh, involvement in clubs and extracurricular activity, presumably a good thing in terms of school climate and things that can be measured, rather than, uh, in effect, uh, administering personality inventories to, uh, to sixth graders and using their scores on conscientiousness as a way of... Uh, of holding a school uh, accountable. So again, you know, be specific, uh, uh, focus on things that matter, that schools already focus on, develop good measures of that, 
and uh, move cautiously ahead, not, not uh, to be optimistic, to be positive about the potential here, but to acknowledge the difficulty of getting the task done and the need to, uh, uh, to exercise restraint and wisdom in, uh, in trying to move the huge enterprise of public education in a different direction. My guest today has been Russ Whitehurst, Professor Emeritus at Stony Brook University and the author of A Prevalence of Evidence-Based Policymaking, available now at educationnext.org. Russ, thanks for being part of the podcast. I'm pleased to have been a part of it. Thank you. You've been listening to the EdNext podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. While you're there, be sure to check out our archive and, especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.